Chapel Hills. Greg Boyd here. I'm teaching pastor at, at, at this uh, community, and it's good to have you all joining with us uh, this, this morning. Uh, you know, there are some upsides to this uh, lockdown situation in which we find ourselves, a few here and there. Uh, one of them is that um, you no longer have to feel guilty about uh, deciding to stay home because it was too cold to go to church. <laughs> uh, we, you have a guilt-free morning here. This morning, sit there in the coziness of your room and, and uh, just enjoy this service. Uh, it is, when I got up this morning, it was 11 below zero, uh, regular temperature, and 28 below with wind chill. <laughs> so, uh, to come to Jesus, Minnesota winter moment. So enjoy that. On the other hand, there's a downside to it, and that is that, uh, some of you recall, I, I, we used to afford, give righteousness points for folks who would brave the weather to come to church, and now you don't get any righteousness points. Uh, and I know some of you need those righteousness points, so, you know, there's that, so. Okay, so today we have a very special day, very special. Um, usually when you tune into Woodland Hills Church, or any church really, you get one sermon, one sermon per Sunday morning, but today... You get two. We're going to have two for the price of one, no extra charge. Give me a freebie. So uh, there's sermon number one and sermon number two, and you'll see why here in a moment. Uh, sermon number one is more kind of an announcement, but it's actually kind of a sermon too, so I'm calling it a sermon number one. And I, if I had to entitle this first sermon, I would entitle it, uh, to, to open or not to open? That is the question. Tis nobler to stay open or to not? I forget how the rest of the thing goes. Um, but it's a question that a lot of people have been asking us. When you guys are going to open, because, you know, the governor has now said that we can uh, have gatherings uh, of up to 25% capacity, which for us would be like, I think, about 400, 500 people or so. And so we could do that. Um, other churches are opening. Some are anyways. Um, and and uh, the COVID rate is dropping. And so folks are saying, why aren't you opening? Uh, some folks, you know, get a little frustrated. It's like my mom's church is opening, my brother's church is opening, but why aren't you guys opening? And it's never intended like this, but it, it, it can start to feel almost like, a, like peer pressure. You know, like in sixth grade when someone's trying to get you to smoke. Come on, just try it, just try it. Everyone else is doing it, everyone else is doing it. Why are you? It's chicken, chicken. What is Woodland Hills chicken? Bark, bark, Woodland Hills. Chicken won't open up. Uh, why don't you just choose faith over fear? Now, if you worked out that policy consistently, you'd, I, <laughs> uh, you'd be as reckless as can be in the name of faith. But so he, here's the thing. Our, 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 our board and our, our staff, we have been really seriously talking about this, uh, going back and forth on it and praying over it. Uh, and now they've asked me to share with all of you uh, why we, the leadership of Woodland Hills Church feels, right now at least, called to resist the trend to reopen. And, and I, I know this is a topic which, uh, you know, I just made light of it, but, but in fact, it, there's a lot of emotion involved in this, in not just with church, but with, you know, schools and, and, and bars and restaurants and all the rest. You know, there's a lot of, because there's different perspectives you can have on this, and I don't think everyone will agree with me and with the leadership of Wilton Hills Church, and that's fine, and we understand that. Um, but just try to keep an open mind as we just sort of share why we here at Woodland Hills don't feel like we should be opening just yet. And I want to make it clear that this is just about what the leadership of Woodland Hills Church believes about Woodland Hills, what God's calling Woodland Hills to do. And it's not about any other churches. Everyone's got to call the shots on their own. And we bless them and they don't have to agree with us. But this is why we feel called to go in this direction. Uh, I'll start by just reminding you of a sermon I gave last week on uh, how love fulfills the whole law. 
Um, if you didn't hear that message and yet you consider Woodland Hills part of your community, I encourage you to listen to that message because I pulled kind of condensed into one 40-minute segment um, all this stuff about the centrality of love and, and it is the most fundamental, I say the most fundamental teaching point of our, of our community. Uh, we, we, the bullseye that we want to be shooting for and living for is to be living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. It's why our slogan is learning to love together. It's so simple, and yet it, it's so profound because that is, in the end, all that we are called to do. Uh, we saw last week that the whole law and the prophets are summed up, Jesus says, when we love the Lord our, our, our God with all of our heart and mind and soul, and we love our neighbor as ourself. And he says, on this hang all the law and the prophets. Uh, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, well, there's two that I got to give you. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and if you do this, everything else you need to do will be, will be fulfilled. Paul drives us home in 1 Corinthians 13. That, uh, you know, you can have gifts of tongues and move mountains with your faith and have all knowledge and understand all mysteries. But if you don't have love, it's worthless. And what he's saying there is that love is the one value giver in the kingdom. Love is the one thing that makes any activity a distinctly kingdom activity. And so you can have the most impressive activity in the world, but if it's not done for love, out of love, for the sake of love, then it's, from a kingdom perspective, altogether worthless. Uh, if you do this, living in love like this, then everything else you need to do will be gotten down. But if you don't do this, if we miss this bullseye, it doesn't matter what else we do, whoever else we impress, uh, it doesn't matter. It's, it's altogether worthless from a kingdom perspective. So this is the bullseye of the kingdom that we're never to take our eye off of. And it's important to remember what love is. Talked about this last week as well. Love is defined by the Bible. The kind of love that we're called to live in is, is defined by pointing us to the cross. Uh, here's how we know what love is, John says. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay down our life for one another. So the cross reveals the kind of love that God is, and it reveals the kind of love that we are to be always aspiring towards. This is the very definition of what it is to be godly. Here's, here's how we are supposed to be like God in terms of how we love. Loving like the rain falls, loving like the sun shines, loving indiscriminately like, uh, like Abba Father does. Uh, this is the kind of love that's other-oriented. In uh, Philippians 2.4, Paul tells us to put uh, others' interests above our own. So this is the kind of love that esteems the interest, the welfare, the well-being of others ahead of our own. Uh, this is the kind of love that leads us to follow Jesus' example of going out of our way to care for the least of these, caring for the most vulnerable, caring for those who are forgotten, caring for those who are trampled on, caring for those who are cast aside, caring for those who maybe others, it's not on their radar screen to care for them. We're to go out of our way to care for them. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, that this is to characterize everything we do. Let all that you do, all that you do be done in love. So if all that we do is to be done in love, then this decision about whether to open or not should be done in love. Cross-like love, self-sacrificial love, other-oriented love. Uh, Janice Rawlings, our executive pastor, who this church is indebted to in more, more ways than you could imagine. Uh, she, as well as some other pastors, as she listened to the sermon last week, uh, she, she, she felt that this should completely reframe this question of reopening, at least reframe the way it's usually asked, the way we usually kind of you know, proceed with this. So here's the deal. Uh, now we have the legal right to gather together. That's true. We can reopen if we want to. But notice that when I say we can reopen if we want to, it's not all of us. Uh, it's all of us who are healthy enough 
to not have to worry too much about the risk of gathering together in groups of people. There is a risk there. I don't care how cautious you are. There's somewhat of a risk. But if you're healthy and you don't have any underlying conditions, you know, you're okay. You might be okay with that. But the we does not include people who have got underlying conditions, people for whom you know, contracting this, this virus could be absolutely lethal. That could be true of anybody, but they're at a higher risk of this. Of course, they're free to come. They could come, but then if they were to come, they'd be at a higher risk. So the decision for us to open is not a decision for all of us to open. It's just a decision for those of us who are fortunate enough, almost might say privileged enough to be healthy, to not be vulnerable. Maybe you had the vaccine, or maybe you have caught COVID before, so you have this immunity, although that is becoming less of a security as these variants are rising up. Uh, you could recast re that again. Uh, so the decision for us to reopen necessarily excludes or puts at risk those who are most vulnerable. Yes, we who are healthy have the right to gather together, but doing so either excludes or puts at risk the people who are most vulnerable to this. Now, we're to do everything in love. So what does love look like here? What does cross-like love, other-oriented love, putting the interests of others ahead of your own kind of love, what does it look like in, for this decision? And for us, it seems to, uh, the leadership of Woodland Hills Church anyways, that it's more consistent with cross-like love. For those who are strong, to put the interests of the vulnerable ahead of their own. To sacrifice a right we have to get together for the sake of those who would be excluded or would be uh, uh, put more at risk by that decision. It seems to me that Paul gives an illustration of this in Romans 14. Uh, he's talking to the Christians and the congregations in Rome, and, and he, he distinguishes between the weak and the strong. He's talking about their conscience. And the issue that they're dividing over is, is, should you eat meat that's offered to idol, and is it okay to drink wine? And some said yes, and Paul calls them the strong. They have strong their faith is strong, and they don't get convicted over things like that. But others do. And then Paul says in Romans 14 that you who are strong, uh, don't use your rights, your privileges, your strength, in ways that would cause your brother or sister to stumble, uh, to harm them in any way. Don't, because you're strong, don't make decisions that are going to minimize or ostracize or put at risk, uh, alienate or cause to stumble those who aren't as strong. And so it seems to me that the application of this to our situation here is yeah, those of us who uh, maybe are healthy enough to come without much concern at all and gather together, and that would be so wonderful. That'd be one, but, but to do that, we're, we're excluding folks uh, who can't come and putting others at risk. In some ways, to go ahead with that decision might be c communicating, you know, you're not as, as essential to our community as, as the, the rest of us who are gathering here, because we can get by without you. When in fact, as Delon pointed out earlier, um, that it, it's, it's, it's in our weakness that God is most glorified. We, we need every part of the body of Christ. Uh, and if anything, you know, Jesus he tells us in, in Luke 14 that, that when you have a gathering, when you're going to have a party, make sure you go out of your way to include those who are never invited to parties. You know, the, the, the ostracized of society, the beggars, the poor people, the, the lame, the lepers, all the rest. Make sure you include those folks. So if anything, we should be going out of our way to include those folks, not going out of our way to make a decision that's going to exclude them or put them at risk. Um, I'll tell you that I have, I have, uh, oh, it's also important to remember that when we talk about folks who are vulnerable, it's not just people with underlying conditions, though it includes them, of course. It's not just senior citizens. It's anyone who's more at risk because of this, this, this COVID thing. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, people of color. 
they are two and a half to three times more likely to get COVID and die from this COVID virus than, than our white folks. So the decision for us to open is going to be, the ones who aren't going to be part of that, us are going to be a much higher percentage of people of color. And what looks wrong with that picture? For us, it seems like it's, that's not the kind of decision we should be making. That's not the kind of message we want to be sending. And that's not the kind of message we want to be living. And I'll add that I have a personal horse in this race now. I got COVID back in October. And uh, it was nasty. It was not like the flu. It's like no bug I've ever had. I kept on trading in, trading out different symptoms. It was just wild. Uh, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I know some people get by without any symptoms whatsoever, but some people get knocked hard. And I, I'm lucky. I didn't get knocked nearly as hard as a lot of folks get. And it's been any time in the hospital. But... Uh, um, they have these long haulers, these, the lingering effects. And lucky me, it just goes into the pattern that I've had in the last year. I am one of those long haulers. I, I have a, a, I'm sleeping two to three hours more every 24-hour cycle than I used to sleep. I'm getting eight hours sleep a night. This is crazy. I, I've always, my whole life, I've gone by in five, and then I take a little 20-minute nap, and I'm good to go. Now I take eight hours and then I, I take a nap and I sleep for another hour. It's crazy. I, how do you get anything done? You eight hours a night, people, how, you get out of bed, the day's half over. I, it drives me nuts. I have this wheeziness and the cough that, that, that uh, uh, lingers here and there, goes and comes and goes and whatever. And it's not bronchitis or pneumonia or anything. I got my lungs checked out. They're just, he just says it's, it's re residual COVID crud and your, your lungs are still irritated. And so the bottom line is that I have an underlying condition. If I were to get COVID now, especially one of the new variants, I, I have immunity, I think, to, to the standard view, although it's not clear that I would have that. It's just more likely. But the variants, uh, that's the African virus could get around that, and I could, and that is, uh, they say it's accelerating much faster than the run-of-the-mill kind of COVID thing. So I would be at risk to the point where the leadership, uh, the corporate celebration team that runs the weekend services, they have told me that uh, if, 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 the, if that virus is still raging when we decide to open, uh, that I should not be in that crowd. Uh, I would be at a higher risk. It, it, it knocked me on my butt when I was healthy and got it. What would it be like now that I'm, I'm, I'm compromised? Uh, I, I don't know. But they, they are saying that. I, so I would have to have a pre-recorded message or be off-site. Uh, as you leave your homes so you don't have to watch me on screen and now come to watch me on screen at the church uh, when I'm preaching. But it's not just me. Uh, Paul Eddy also would have to stay away. And we have several other pastors who have got uh, uh, conditions or circumstances that, uh, um, that uh, make it unreasonable for them to go in any kind of large gathering. Uh, Paul was told that he should avoid crowds like the plague, even if you're, no pun intended. Well, actually, a pun is intended. Avoid it like the plague, because that is the plague. Uh, and, and, and to stay away from that. So, so you know, we've always said that, that uh, the church isn't someplace you go. It's something we are. Don't, don't, you don't go to church. Be the church. And so this is a great opportunity for us to keep on growing in our, in our being in the church. In some ways, I think that there's so much emphasis on going to church for some Christians that it took the onus off of the being the church. Well, now let's reverse that. Let's keep on growing in our capacity to be the church. Along those lines, I want to say one more thing, and that is, if you are healthy enough to, so you would go to a gathering that's obeying CDC you know, guidelines, uh, but you don't feel threatened by that because you're healthy, maybe you're younger, you, whatever, you're just, you're okay with taking reasonable risks. Uh, well, since we're not letting you do that by coming to a weekend service, I encourage you to refocus that. Okay, so 
I can't do what you could do if you were able to go out there and whatever. And so here's the thing. In, in, uh, in the government, they have these essential workers. Everything depends on these people. Being, these are essential people, the frontliners. And their, risk, their, their job puts them at more risk than the rest of us, but it's just kind of required of their job. And that gets kind of funky when their job gets pretty risky, like it is, for example, with teachers. And we're working through all of that. But if you are a person who is re re relatively healthy, you don't have underlying conditions, are not more at risk, and are willing to, you know, take that reasonable risk, consider being a, a, an essential kingdom worker. An essential kingdom worker. Take the time that maybe you would have, instead of making a decision to take a risk for yourself, make decisions to take risks for, for the sake of others, because that's consistent with cross-like love. Maybe there's pe people on your block uh, who need someone to go shopping for them, or uh, need their sidewalk plowed, uh, or you can volunteer in some organizations, or you can, right now there's a big need for blood, okay? So you can spend your time, and a lot of folks stay away from those places because a lot of people c c uh, congregate there. Uh, that's where they gather. But if you're not afraid of that, be one of those who gives blood. Or volunteering at church, or just ask the question, live in the question, and pray over the question, how might God use me in this season here, where we can't gather together, but we are called to be the church. Maybe you're called to be an essential worker in the church. Uh, whatever else you get out of this, this is not the time to coast. Uh, this is the time we want to be pressing in on this. Uh, up your game, if anything. And the other, it's like we're playing chess and we've lost our queen. In, in, the, in, the, in the normal church, the weekend service is sometimes treated like as the queen. Well, we, we now can't have the queen, but let's get good at chess and every other piece we can play. Just getting, I'm playing off the, the uh, Queen's Gambit, Gambit, which is a really good movie, by the way, if you want to check that out in this COVID season. It's a surprising movie about chess, but it's really pretty interesting. Okay, one last question, and that is, when will it be safe? When, 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 when? And my definitive answer is, I don't know. The future's open. Haven't you heard, learned that from me yet? The future's open. It's particularly open right now because a lot will depend on what happens in, in March and April. Uh, you know, there's this <coughs> fastly spreading African variant and the UK variant and all these other kind of variants that are coming around. And it's a race against the clock to slow down this, the, the, the uh, mutations by getting these vaccinations and all this. So it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting battle we're in now. Some are saying that, everyone's saying there's going to be somewhat of a bump up, but some are saying it could be mild, but some are saying, like Dr. Osterholm at, at, the, at the University of Minnesota says that it could be worse than anything we've seen so far. So we're just going to keep our eyes open. And, you know, we'll call it play by play. Be in prayer with us over this. Partner with us. That, so we would have wisdom and discernment uh, to know when is the right time, which is the time that will be consistent with cruciform love, where it will be at least reasonably safe for all of us to get together. Uh, pray that we can discern that. Um, and, and that we're, we're, our motive for doing that is nothing other than, than the fact that we want to be uh, concerned for, living for, having an eye for, putting the interests of the vulnerable over, the, uh, over, over those of our own. I, I, I will tell you that I, I know this hurts. I get the frustration of it. I love, I miss church service. I, I miss it. It's, uh, I miss the energy and, and, and the singing together and, you know, just the, uh, seeing familiar faces, seeing old new faces, uh, the hugs, you know, the questions, uh, the, the amens, the rowdy folks in the first few rows giving me smack talk. I miss the tap, hanging out with the tap, although we meet on Monday nights on Zoom, but it's not quite the same. I miss all of that, but I'll just say hang in there, hang in there. I don't know when we're going to reopen. Uh, we'll do it as soon as possible when it's safe 
and, and, and consistent with the cross like love. But until then, let's just keep pressing on uh, the way we're doing here. And thus ends sermon number one. All right. Now, for no extra charge whatsoever, sermon number two. And this is the sermon that I was going to give until we made this decision to you know, kind of do this announcement. And so I had to cut this in uh, half. Uh, and I'm proud of the way that I did it. So there, there you go. This is, I'll entitle this message, The Divinely Inspired Story of God. Divinely Inspired Story of God. And I, I use the word story as opposed to word. Usually we call the Bible the Word of God. This is the Word of God. And that's fine, Word of God, because the Bible itself refers to it, you know, the Word. But I like the story better. I think it captures better what we're trying to say when we say this is an inspired word. Because the Bible is not a word, it's a story. <laughs> Uh, the word word kind of makes it, makes it sound propositional, like this is a textbook or something. But in fact, this is a story. And, and so this is the inspired story of God. It's a story, in fact, that we're supposed to be identifying with because our life together as a community is an ongoing chapter in this story that God has inspired. Um, we're uh, looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and we're spending a couple of weeks on this because these are some really important foundational verses. Uh, and I'll just say this. I have a Bible here, you may have noticed. I, I'm really torn. On the one hand, you know, Bruxy makes a great case uh, that, that, and Tara, Tara Beth Leach also makes a case that we need to get back to our physical Bibles because people are starting to think that the Bible is, a, is an app. And the Bible's not an app. And you'll misread it if you... So on the one hand, I want to have a physical Bible. On the other hand, I often have too many verses and it takes too much time to look them over and stuff. So for right now, I'll, I'll have the Bible up here to say I believe in the physical Bible, uh, but I'm still going to read from the screen. How's that? <laughs> I'm just caught between the two. Here's, here, here's what it says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus said. And he said that because some people were saying that he came to, came to abolish the law and the prophets. And I talked about that last week. Encourage you to get that message if you uh, didn't hear it. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And it will be accomplished in him. Therefore, Jesus says, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices... And teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right. About six months ago, July 26, uh, 2020, I gave a sermon entitled The Expert. And in that message, or in that teaching, I gave... Some of the reasons that I have for believing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that believing that Jesus is basically the way he's re represented in the Gospels, that they are basically rely generally reliable documents by historical standards. And um, I've got reasons to think that, in fact, he was telling the truth, that they were telling the truth. Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of God, which simply means the embodiment, the human embodiment of Yahweh. Lots of very compelling reasons. Believing in Jesus is not a matter of just mindlessly, you know, just a blind leap of faith. Um, Faith is involved, but it's a reasonable faith because God gives us reasons for believing that this is actually true. I think that's very important. So of all the different voices out there that I could listen to as, and, and, and consider to be my ultimate authority on things spiritual and things pertaining to God and how I should live and what life's all about and what's the purpose of anything, and I feel I have more reasons to put my trust in Jesus than I have for any other source. Not that there isn't truth in other sources, but, but I'm putting all my eggs in this basket 
because I have reasons to believe, he gives me, he, he has the credentials to be credible. Credentials to be credible. And so I put my faith in him. Um, I can't review that case right now. Just trust me, it's compelling. And if you want to look more into it, go back and check out that sermon. And we've got books on that and other things that you could look at. Look at. So now, on top of that, I want to say this. This person who I have reasons to believe is the ultimate authority on things pertaining to the spiritual realm. Uh, this person whom I have reasons to call Lord and bow my knee before him as Lord, he taught, and we just saw it, that the law and the prophets have to be fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away before any of the, the law and the prophets uh, fades away. And when he says law and prophets, that's just a first century idiomatic way of saying the entire Bible that Jesus and, and his Jewish disciples knew. Uh, first of the whole thing. And by extension, I could say, and there's some suggestion in the Gospels that Jesus assumed that, anticipated that the process of God acting in history, the story of God's about God's redemptive activity in history, and the process of God acting in history and then having people write about it, inspiring people to write about it, that that would continue with his disciples. Precisely because they saw this whole story as being fulfilled and culminated in him. So of course there has to be a written witness to it, following the pattern of the Old Testament. So the bottom line of this is that Jesus believes all of this is divinely inspired. And so all my reasons for thinking that he is the Son of God, that he is the embodiment of Yahweh on earth, now become reasons for me to consider this whole book to be inspired. And by the way, it's not disputed that Jesus viewed the whole Old Testament as, as inspired. I mean, he, even, even New Testament scholars that are, uh, have kind of an ax to grind with the supernatural and therefore think all supernatural things are legendary and therefore judge the Gospels to be largely legendary and, and has, having very little historical value, even those most liberal scholars agree, like Rudolf Bultmann, they agree that the historical Jesus saw the whole Old Testament as being divinely inspired. So it's not a matter that's in dispute. So all my reasons for believing in Jesus as the embodiment of Yahweh now become reasons for me to believe that this entire Bible is inspired by God. Now there's other reasons you can give as well, like fulfilled prophecies and things like that, but I think the authority of Jesus is the strongest because the reasons for believing in Jesus, historically and philosophically, I think are the strongest. So my conviction is that as part of my submission to Jesus is my submitting to Scripture. Not as my ultimate authority. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Um, and that's why we interpret everything through the lens of Jesus. But Jesus himself endorses these writings as being divinely inspired. And I'm thinking that if he's the embodiment of God, he's probably not wrong about that. And if I call him Lord, it just seems kind of odd for me to say you're a Lord, but he, your, the, your theology needs some improvement. You were wrong about the Bible. Uh, it just seems kind of, especially on something as fundamental as this. So I, I, I think it's part of discipleship to embrace the entire Bible as it is, as the inspired story of God. I worry somewhat, honestly, that some progressive Christians coming out of evangelicalism, and they, they, they correctly sometimes see what are the shortcomings of you know, kind of traditional evangelicalism, my worry is that they don't see the connection between the lordship of Jesus and the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. They don't see it. So they're okay with the authority of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, but they've adopted a kind of a looser view of the Bible or a lower view of the Bible. Uh, some of these folks would say, well, look, at in the light of what we know since the Enlightenment, in light of what we know from science, in light of what we know from biblical criticism, 
uh, we can now see that this passage here is kind of just reflects a primitive worldview, and this is sort of just archaic, and this reflects kind of the cultural conditioning of the, uh, of, of the, 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 the authors, and, and so on and so on. And so they feel free to not take it seriously. Now, I don't disagree that there are parts of the Bible that, that reflect the cultural conditioning of the authors. I, I don't disagree with that at all. I don't disagree that, that, that we have to take historic criticism into consideration as we're studying the Bible. I have no trouble with that. It's just that I don't think we're free to dismiss it because, of, because we think it's ancient or archaic or primitive or whatever. Uh, it seems to me on the authority of Jesus, we have to consider all of this Bible, just as it is, uh, to be the inspired Word of God. And so if, whatever else that means, it means I am not free to dismiss anything because I don't get it or I think it's old or whatever. No, it, 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 I have to take every verse seriously. That's what I think the inspiration of Scripture means. You take every verse seriously. You have to wrestle with all of it. It's kind of like the American Constitution, all right? You, you, uh, we have to abide by it, but you can interpret it in different ways and whatever. A judge is not free to say, nah, let's just throw out that, you know, First Amendment or 13th or 4th or whatever. You can make amendments, but uh, you can't just throw it out. So we're bound to this book as far as I'm concerned. My real, my, 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 my and I think this is an incredibly important point, because history shows us that whenever any group, even professing Jesus Christ as Lord, when they cut the tether to biblical authority, uh, they tend to start to float out into space. Uh, the most recent example of this is, I think, the Emergent Church. Um, started as, I think, a, as, as a legitimate reaction to a lot of shortcomings found in traditional Christianity, but they cut the tether with biblical authority and they, they start to just kind of jump on fad, fad wagons. You know, whatever's the recent fad, let's Christianize it. Whatever they think is cool, let's Christianize it. And so, yeah, they, they, they know what they're against, but they didn't know what they were standing for. I think it's imperative that we hold fast to the biblical inspiration of Scripture. I know I sound conservative right now. I sound like a raging fundamentalist, probably. It's funny, folks, some folks call me liberal. Well, listen to this. I'm a Bible believer here. This is, this is crucial. Hang on to this. Don't lose this. My, my real concern is this. All around the world, you've heard me say this, that there is this movement that is rising up. Uh, no one is orchestrating this. It's just a, a, the Holy Spirit's doing it. And people are catching this vision of a Jesus-looking God raising up a Jesus-looking people to change the world in a Jesus kind of way. It's a kingdom movement. And it's beautiful. And people are, are, are experimenting with different ways of doing church that are just so cross-like, so, so other-oriented, so beautiful. And it's, it's great. And Woodland Hills is part of this movement. Meeting House is part of that movement. We've uh, now started the Jesus Collective, which is there to, to help, help equip this movement and, and kind of unify and network this movement. But I want to use any voice that I have, any authority that I have to speak into this movement. And I want to use that to say, do not ever lose, lose your grip on, 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 and, and your faith in the confidence of, of, of Scripture being the Word of God. Uh, we lose that, we're going to start floating out in outer space. It's absolutely crucial to hang on to a high view of Scripture. Now, I, I want to say a word about what that means and what it does not mean. I'll start with what it does not mean. Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean to confess the Bible as the inspired story of God does not mean that you have to accept everything that Christians have always said about the inspired story of God. For example, I've heard, probably some of you have heard uh, or have read, uh, folks who will say that if this is a, a divinely inspired book, 
Since God is perfect, this book must be perfect. And by perfect, they mean it must conform to all of our expectations, of, of, all of our criteria of, of what perfection is. So I've heard folks say things like, this Bible's 100% without any error. It's 100% accurate. It's 100% beautiful. It, it, it glorifies God on every page. Hallelujah. It's, it's, a, it's a literary masterpiece. One of the issues I have with that is it's simply not true. And, and, and the thing is, if you tell folks this, as I was taught when I was first a Christian, and then you go to the University of Minnesota or you meet somebody who's done a little reading on this or yourself, you, you read a book on it, it's not too hard to show that it's not 100% free of error, 100% accurate. It's remarkably accurate for an ancient book, but you can't say it's 100% on all that. And yeah, there are parts of it that are literary masterpieces, but there are parts of it that are pretty ordinary, even sub-ordinary. Uh, and parts of it are magnificently beautiful, especially when it comes to the revelation of God and Jesus Christ. But there are parts of it, let's be honest, that are not beautiful. Sometimes when I hear these folks make these claims about the Bible, I ask myself, what Bible are they talking about? So, so here's the thing. Isn't, a little, isn't it a little bit presumptuous or even arrogant for us to think that we, to, to expect that God's going to conform to our standards of perfection? God, here's the box that you must operate in. Where do we, where do we get the information that a perfect God must inspire and must breathe a perfect Bible? Where does that come from? Because it seems to me, folks, that if anything, if we learn anything about God in the person of Jesus Christ, it's that God does not usually conform to our assumptions about anything. <laughs> He seems to be a God who specializes in blowing our assumptions sky high. Jesus comes here and, and, and he's the Messiah, right? But all, most of the Jews, or as many of the Jews in the first century at that time, they thought they knew what the Messiah would look like. They, they had a clear idea of what a perfect Messiah was going to be. And Jesus didn't meet those criteria, and that's why he got crucified. So the Messiah is supposed to be a king, and they tried to make Jesus a king, but he said, no, thank you. And... Uh, He's supposed to be, because he's a king, he's supposed to, you know, live in wealth. But Jesus doesn't have a place to lay his head. He's, he's poor. He goes around poor. Uh, Messiah is supposed to hang out with holy people and the royal people, right? And the, uh, high and mighty. But Jesus doesn't so much hang out with those folks. He goes to the least of these. He goes to the, the, the low lives, uh, the folks that are, are rejected, the folks that are cursed and condemned and judged. He hangs out with them. hangs out with sinners. Uh, the Messiah is supposed to meticulously obey the law and crack down on the law, but Jesus, he fulfills the law by the way he loves, but he doesn't do it meticulously, and he doesn't crack down uh, on, on folks. He doesn't carry out some of the Old Testament uh, punishments that were prescribed for people. Uh, he, he blows their assumptions sky high, and that's why so many missed him. The, the Messiah was supposed to be victorious and supposed to defeat Rome, kill all of, Rome, uh, of Israel's enemies, but Jesus comes and he gets himself crucified by Israel's enemies, out of love for Israel's enemies, for the sake of Israel's enemies, and for everybody else as well. So he just doesn't fit the conception of what a Messiah is supposed to be. And then just think about this. The claim is that a perfect God must reveal himself through a perfect medium, right? A perfect medium, a sinless medium, an errorless medium. That's the claim. But now think about this. Where does God most fully reveal himself? Answer, in the crucified Christ. Uh, that's the perfect revelation of God. Uh, 
Think about the medium of the crucified Christ. God, God perfectly reveals himself through this man. This man who is bearing the sin of the world. This man who is bearing the curse of this world. This man who is embodying all that's wrong and missing and, and broken in this world. God reveals himself perfectly through that medium. So apparently God doesn't have a problem revealing himself through broken and air-filled and sin-filled mediums. You see, especially when you consider that this story that we're talking about it culminates in the cross. It all points to the cross. It's supposed to lead us to the cross. It's supposed to lead us to this one who embodies all the sin of the world, the curse of the world, all the imperfection of the world. And so if, if it's all designed to point to the one who embodies the imperfection and sin of the world, why would we think it's entirely free of imperfections? You see, God just doesn't conform to our, our, our assumptions about what perfect is. The Bible is perfect in terms of what God wants it to do. And what God wants us to do most of all is to point us to Jesus Christ and then be transforming us into his image. I, I'm afraid that a lot of Christians have made something similar to the mistake that the Jews made in the first century. They thought they had, they assumed that they knew what a perfect Messiah was like and they were wrong. So also many today assume that they know what a, 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 a perfect Bible is, what a perfect you know, medium for God to breathe through is. And they think it's got to be flashy. It's got to be perfect. It's got to be wow. When in fact, God always uses the weak things of this world to confound the strong and the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So wouldn't we think if that's true, he always does that, the Bible is going to contain some ordinary human foolishness and some ordinary human weakness. Uh, if you want to go more into that, if you have not heard me teach on that before, I have a book on this topic called Inspired Imperfection. Uh, how the, how the, 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 the heirs of the Bible actually contribute to our appreciation of his divine inspiration. So anyways, that's what inspiration does not mean. But here's what it does mean. It means, at the very least, that, that this, this, this story is an authority in my life. It means that this story is, is, is supposed to be an authority in our life. And I, I emphasize our because this is a community book. Uh, it was inspired for a community to read, and it was inspired to shape a community, to be kind of the constitution of this community, and to guide this community, and be a means of, by which this community is transformed. What it means to confess Scripture to be divinely inspired is that you identify with that story. You get in on the inside of that story. You see yourself as an extension of that story, and that authority, that, that story has authority over you because you're part of the, the, the community that that story has authority over. It means that we identify ourselves as the, as the, the children of Abraham, which is what the New Testament calls us, which loops, up, loops us back into the story of Israel coming out of Egypt. That's our story. We are, we are the people about whom that is true. We're all now made uh, engrafted into Israel. And it means that we look at this story to be a means of, we, we acknowledge that Jesus endorsed this story, this collection of writings, uh, to be a means by which we're transformed into Christ-likeness. So the way the, the Apostle Paul puts it is, is like this. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings, talking about the Bible, the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the main thing it does. It instructs us in salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It all points towards Jesus. It gets us into that saving relationship with Jesus. And then Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God. Theonoustos, God breathed. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. The word of God is inspired to bring us into a saving relationship with Jesus and it's useful for teaching and reproof and correction uh, and, and making us proficient in every good work in equipping us to do what God calls us to do. So the question I want to ask is, are we letting the Bible do that? Are, are we letting it be that authority in our life? Now, the fact that you're listening to me right now is good news because it means that you want the Bible to have that authority in your life. Uh, preaching is about bringing the Bible to the congregation and, and encouraging the congregation to live by it. And, and when first comes to the show, that's the bottom line. So good, you're, you want to do that. But the question goes deeper than that. Is, are we actually doing this? Are we letting it have this authority in our life? Because what I've learned is that it's really easy to profess the Bible to be divinely inspired, to confess it to be the story, inspired story of God, and yet you find out that it has very little role in your life, in shaping your life. It's, it's all too easy for, for, to let that happen. And one of the main ways that happens is that we uh, allow something else to be a higher authority in our life than Scripture. And we do it without knowing it, unconsciously, unwittingly, but something can supplant Scripture as, as a, a, the authority that's to shape our life. And these days, the main thing that I see is supplanting the authority of Scripture is simply people's experience or their intuition or their common sense. Um, these days, personal experience has become the ultimate criteria for many people of what truth is. And, and since everyone's experience is a little bit different, everyone's truth becomes a little bit different. And if your experience is your ultimate criteria for what you decide is true, and follow this, then when you read the Bible, what parts of it do you think you'll find are true? The ones that confirm your experience. What happens to the rest? Well, they don't conform to your experience of truth, so you don't have to really worry about it. Whatever it meant, whatever it meant back then, it doesn't relate to me now. It's not part of my, my experience of truth. And see, if, if you accept this, this paradigm, then what it means is that the Bible can never, it will never function the way God inspired the Bible to function. It, it, it won't be correcting you. It won't be reproving you. It can't be equipping you because everything it could do to change you is ruled out because you've already made your experience as it presently is to be the arbiter of all truth. All the Bible can do is confirm what you already think. And that's not letting the, the, the story of God be authoritative in your life. Uh, our job is to bring our experience and submit it to Scripture. And, uh, and that's an important role that it plays, but it, 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 experience should not be Lord of our life. Common sense should not be Lord of our life. Jesus Christ is Lord of our life, and he endorses this collection of writings, the divinely inspired story of God, to play this authoritative role. Okay, all of this is not that surprising when you consider the fact that we are living in what's called a postmodern age, a postmodern age, uh, where experience and subjectivity are just being highlighted all over the place. And so I would like to talk for a moment here about how our confidence in Scripture being the inspired story of God intersects with the postmodern world that has influenced all of us to some degree or, or, or another. And to do that, I have two special guests up here. I have Cedric Baker, who you heard before was our wonderful host. He's the proud father of a five-month-old baby named Christian. 
This kid's just adorable too. Thank God he got his mother's looks. And then we have Emily Morrison here, who's just, she works on a communication team and she's full of creativity, but also just has got insight and wit and wisdom. I've asked these folks to come up here because they're more part of the younger generation that is more influenced by this postmodern thing than I am. And so I'd like to ask you all some questions here and there. Um, Cedric, let me start with you. As, as uh, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of a high administrator in the, in the St. Paul School District. I don't know if you knew that about him, but he is. He's a, he's a muckety-muck. Uh, and, and he has to deal with all those problematic parents and all the rest of that. But, uh, and so Lord bless you, pray for him. Uh, but it, it, here's the thing. I think you probably have your thumb on the pulse of this kind of postmodern uh, you know, gestalt, this, this age that we're in. Um, you know, a lot of folks are really scared of this. Uh, and I understand why. But it, it seems to me there's also a lot of undeniable truth in postmodernism. I, I just, just, for the audience, define postmodernism as it's after modernism, postmodernism. And modernism was the age in which people had this unprecedented confidence in reason. Uh, that we can rationally, it comes out of the scientific revolution, and we can rationally know reality, and two people who are rational can always come to some kind of agreement about what reality is. And so there's this great confidence in reason. Postmodernism is after that. Over the last 40, 50 years, we've seen this confidence in reason just being whittled away, and people are now aware that there's a lot more that goes into people's view of truth than just reason. So what do you think is good about this postmodern thing, and what do you think maybe is dangerous about this postmodern thing? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought it up because uh, I, I associate with the uh, millennial generation, um, as my counterpart on stage does as well. And uh, there, there are some things within postmodernism um, that I do feel like has been helpful um, with just navigating the world. One of the things is um, within postmodernism, there's a healthy level of skepticism that exists. Um, with just a lot of things, mainly with ideology and connecting that with um, authority. And I think that we have seen over years and years, um, centuries, that many people have um, used ideology to control um, for political or economic reasons. And so I think with my generations and others that there is a healthy level of skepticism um, concerning um, who's saying what and why and what are they gaining by it. Um, so I do think that that aspect of postmodernism has been helpful. And also to uh, within the overall movement, there's been more of an ability to um, hear perspectives that we probably wouldn't have. And so for that, I, I, I do appreciate aspects of, of the movement. But like everything else, um, sometimes um, the pendulum swings too far to one side. And the concern with postmodernism is somewhat what you said around uh, if you have a truth and I have a truth and everyone has a truth um, and they have a perspective, which they should be bringing a perspective to the table, how and what do we look to for the truth? Um, how do we organize ourselves uh, con connecting with, um, in my opinion, God? And how does the word of God, the story, the narrative of God fit in all of this? So I think that you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are some aspects um, of postmodernism that actually connects really well with my generation. But just like everything else, you can swing too far um, to one side or the other. And too much of that actually could be hurtful uh, for anybody. 
Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I just looking at the situation of America right now. Um, and I know that I'm, I'm, I'm a boomer, and so I, I have more of the modernist in me. I, I confidence in reason and ability, and, and, uh, and on top of that, I, you know, people are wired differently in terms of what value they put on, you know, your prefrontal lobe cortex. I, I tend to lean on that a lot. But what concerns me is that, that the, I always assume that, that to decide what is true, you should look at evidence. What's the evidence for it? And, and, and that's what science is premised on. And uh, what worries me is it seems like the, the, it's true that, that my evaluation of evidence is going to be influenced by my gender, my culture, my experience, all that. Uh, but if that ever becomes something that people can just dismiss my evidence because, because of other things going on in me, well, then what do we talk about? You know, uh, it, the, so your truth, my truth. Now you get your evidence, I have my evidence. But if I don't... If we don't have any shared evidence, what's the point? You know, how do you even talk? I completely agree. I think that we're seeing it um, within our country now and just all over the world that uh, there's more converse, uh, well, arguments rather, <laughs> conversations. I wish there were conversations. <laughs> um, around what you just said. Uh, so I'm in agreement with it. I, I do want to make sure that people understand that even in that part, the, what you just brought up, Greg, even in this conversation, that the definition of truth and whose truth and um, who's bringing what to the table, again, has been uh, used to hurt people right. and um, control people. And so, again, there is still a healthy and somewhat at times needed skepticism around this. I do agree that we must all agree to something, right? right, right. Um, for us to even have a true, honest dialogue. Um, I can't say the sky is green and you say the sky is blue. It, I mean, it, it, it stops the conversation. So there you has say it's to, green, you're colorblind. That's <laughs> there, there has to be some agreement, but I just want to highlight that the skepticism is real and it's at times warranted based on our past history. I, I, I completely concur. In fact, it could be that this whole postmodern movement is in part an intentional reaction against the claims of truth that were made uh, by folks who didn't realize just how much their claims were, like Jacques Derrida is a, a postmodern author, and, and he, he makes the claim that all truth claims are power moves. Uh, now, immediately you got to ask, well, is that truth claim a power move? <laughs> he just made a truth claim. Is that a power move? So apparently not all truth claims are, are power moves. You, you get exemption. Uh, so there's something self-contradictory about it. But the thing is, he, often he's right. It, it's, it, you look at the you know, Western culture and... Uh, a lot of the, the truth claims, and they, those who are keepers of the truth, they're preserving a power position, and that's why other voices aren't heard. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, we get to say what is true, and, not, and what that creates is then a backlash. Yes. Uh, which is needed and necessary and good, and even in some respects kingdom, I, I would say, because uh, it forces us to be humble. But uh, um, if it goes too far, well, now you can't talk about any kind of truth. I agree. And it's disastrous. Emily, as a young, passionate Christian, I, you come out of a conservative background, and, but now you're very much part of this, this uh, postmodern world, and I know you've had to grapple with it. Can you share us a little bit of your story and what that's been like? What's taught yeah. you? Well, first of all, it's an honor to represent the avocado toast-eating millennial generation. <laughs> 
avocado uh, toast. Is that the, the, the oh yes, well, avocado toast. That. That's where all my money goes. Uh, so yeah, I did. I did grow up. I mean, the the millennials. We're in the the perfect generation that we kind of grew up in this soup of postmodernism. And uh, I remember when I was younger, being warned about the dangers of postmodernism, about the slippery slope, and how. Uh, we were going to lose all truth. Society was headed to a yes. to a post-truth. It wasn't just postmodernism. Postmodernism was post-truth, and uh, so I was I was very scared, and I was going to just stick with what I knew. And then I went to college, which is the downfall of so many people, right? Yeah. And uh, I was exposed to all these other ideas, and kind of going off of what Cedric said, I I began to see the value of. Um, I was raised in a certain context. I saw the world a certain way. And there are these voices that were being sidelined. Um, and I realized, like what you were saying, that there's voices that are in power, and they usually dictate what the truth is. And a gift that postmodernism gave us was bringing in voices to the conversation mm -hmm. that were saying, hello, like, <laughs> yeah. you don't have, there's some truth here that you're missing. You're missing yeah, a yeah, piece yeah. of truth. And so I began to experience this shift into being more comfortable with ambiguity. I was very uncomfortable with that. I felt safe and secure when I knew all the answers. Then I began to meet people who had legitimate challenges to what I thought the answers were. And I began to realize, I'm going to need to live with ambiguity. But I still have truth convictions. And so... Mm. That that's the ambiguity right there. Is I I don't know everything. I don't know what? everything. I, what do we hire for? For, for, for? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I got this job here, <laughs> but I I have have convictions, and so I think that um, this is the line we walk. I think uh. you boomers, you know, you you know you know what what there is, and and us younger generation, we have a little bit mm. more comfort with not knowing. I, I think there is an age differential there. There's also, though, um, I, I'm so glad you were able to hold on to, to core convictions as you went through that, because I have seen so many people who they, they go, go right through, pass, go, and, 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 and keep going. Um, and they lose their faith, because they're taught, and a lot of folks have this, that their faith is as strong as they are certain. And, and, uh, and, and, and so everything's got to be unambiguous. It's got to be so clear. It's got to be obvious. Which means that if anyone disagrees with you, they must have, it's not for honest reasons. It's because they have sin in their life. They're running from your God or something like that. So I, I, to be able to, to transition from everything must be perfectly clear. I've got all the answers. To uh, I think I know a few things that are very important, but there's a whole lot of questions around it. Uh, that's not an easy move to make. And I'm, I, one of the things that I, I, I think the church has got to get better at is holding people who are, letting go of their, their old way of doing faith and, 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 and they deconstruct that, but to help them reconstruct it in a way that allows for ambiguity. I think that's, so, so what do you make of the old song that we used to sing? God said it and I believe it and that settles it for me, God said it. What do you think about that? Okay, so I believe that there is... Other than that, I have a terrible voice. Right. A, a many a young evangelical woman who has had a young man approach them and say, I've been reading the Bible, and I think that God is saying that we should date. So there's that. <laughs> not sure. And you're saying, I think it's a little more ambiguous uh, than that. I'm not, not really sure about that. Um, I, the problems that I have with that, with that saying is that our view of the Bible is shaped by who we are. And so um, 
if I'm coming at the Bible and I'm saying, well, this is what the Bible says, it's saying that, you know, you're supposed to date me, uh, that's coming out of my, my perspective, my culture, my background, my influences, and it's not recognizing that I'm bringing a bias. I'm bringing a bias, and like you were talking about, I'm gonna try to find what's true based on my experience. I'm bringing a confirmation bias to scripture. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and Christians have used that to beat people over the head. Like, mm. this is what's true, this is what's true, this is what's right. true, and have, have done a lot of damage. Now, with that being said, I agree that scripture is an authority, and I, I agree that it is, I agree that there's tr- there, there is a truth that we're supposed to follow. So, okay, I'm actually gonna turn this question to you, Greg. Oh. So how do we know then what parts of scripture are true and what parts are, are cultural interpretation? Just ask me, I'll tell you. Okay, okay, <laughs> all right. You, 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 <laughs> Greg said <laughs> it, you believe it, that settles it for you. <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, that, that, that is the, uh, a really good question. You know. I was just thinking as you were sharing uh, that in some ways postmodernism, uh, if we don't go crazy with it, if we hang on to that there's an objective truth, it, it brings us back to some real core Anabaptist values like humility. Uh, and I like the way you put it earlier when you're talking about your belief in God. You said, as I see it, God, and you went on. But there's a qualification, as I see it. You, you're, you're aware that you have one perspective. And that was always a high value for Anabaptists. With that then went this uh, communal discernment or a communal reading of the Bible. Uh, they took the idea that the, the Bible is a community book very seriously. And they, they, they're the only group that I know of, uh, at least at the time, that said that this shouldn't be subject to one person's interpretation. That the pastor has a corner on the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so they, they thought the Holy Spirit guides everyone. Not that there are people you know, who should be you specialize, you learn some more about it, you can teach in these areas. But when it comes to like, what is God saying to us? They were, they, they, they intentionally had this invitation because they knew that no one person is going to have the, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so in some ways, postmodernism kind of feeds back into that. But so it seems to me that, that uh, Emily, that the uh, goal would be you're aware of your confirmation bias. And that's the main thing. Uh, when I come to scripture, I have to be aware that I'm bringing my whole life experience to it and that's going to condition it. But my goal is to submit to it. So I don't want to be stuck in my confirmation bias. And that intention is all important. To now go beyond that then and say, okay, what is the text actually saying? How does it apply? How does it relate to other things? That can get pretty complicated. And so I think the best way to answer your questions is to give you a book. Um, two books I'll, I'll mention. Uh, one I actually had a slide for. Uh, because I was hoping we'd get to this. And it's, it's uh, Megan Good, uh, M-A-G-H-A-N, Megan Good, wonderful lady. She wrote this book called The Bible Unwrapped. And, and she just lays out what is the Bible and how are we supposed to read it. She's an incredible storyteller. It's a really entertaining book, um, but it's also very, very informative. Uh, the other book is the one I used to recommend before I read Megan's book, and that was uh, Gordon Fee and uh, somebody else, and it's called uh, Reading the Bible for All It's Worth. And it just gives out principles here. Of how, do you, how do you decide what's culturally relative, what's not? Like, for example, um, there are principles that you can use. If you find a teaching is consistent throughout the whole Bible, um, that's one indication that you might be dealing with a timeless truth. Because it was, if it was true in all the culture, different time frames, cultural conditions in which the Bible was written, well, then it's probably a, a timeless truth. But if you find that the teaching varies, you know, a, 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 throughout the Bible, that's one indication that, that it's a culturally conditioned thing. 
So I remember when I was coming out of the Pentecostal church, I had to decide, my wife and I had to decide, are we going to drink wine or not? And so I did a thorough study on wine because I was given all the verses that say, you know, don't look on the wine when it's red. It's, you know, will make you a slacker or whatever. I knew those verses, but I discovered a bunch of verses that celebrate it. You know, my favorite is Psalms 104, verse 15. Bless the Lord who gives us wine to make the heart happy. <laughs> uh, so, so that's a culture, you know, for some people it's okay, for some not. In some cultures, yes. In some cultures, no. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's principles like that. Megan Good's uh, book, uh, The Bible Unwrapped. So Cedric, uh, Christianity, we have all this cultural relativity. And Christianity, in fact, has looked very different from culture to culture, um, context to context. But if we believe that there's an objective truth here, we don't want to reduce Christianity down to any cultural expression of it. So we talk a little bit about what you think is sort of the transcultural essence of what we're called to do and what we're called to be. Yeah, I, you, um, a few Sundays ago, uh, I think Paul, Eddie, and others were really talking about um, Alan, Alan Crater's book, or Crater's book. Oh, yeah. Um, patient I got ferment. his and he got mine. Exactly. The patient ferment of the early church. Since you all brought it up, I went and got it. And I've been reading it. And I have just been so... Um, it's a imp- great book, isn't it? It is an awesome book. But it, it really digs into um, how the church grew, um, the early church grew. Um, and the main premise to me of the book is, and, and it brought up about habitus and um, their uh, discipline and discipleship, but it talked about the love that they have for one another's and others. And that them really trying to ensure that they um, had the character of God, mm-hmm. that they read the word, the Bible, the stories of the, of the gospels, and they embodied it and they were able to use that to um, connect with people, love them, and then others join the church. I think that after reading that and just thinking about that question and now um, my generation and today, that the love is the key. Hmm. It, and to me, it will not change. And so my ability to love someone when Others are watching, love someone when um, they've done me wrong, love someone when it's actually a sacrifice, right? To do something for them, but to yes. still do it, to me, is the key that transcends all cultures, um, all times, it is the essence. And I feel like it goes back to your message, it goes back to the Bible. It is the one thing to me wow. that connects all the dots together because even if we disagree and even if we don't always have, we don't always see um, eye to eye on ideology, when it's all said and done, if I'm living out and being, living out this truth through love, then there will be a difference and I will be able um, to be a blessing to you, others, and others will see that as well. So personally, that's how I see it. That's great. It it makes me think, Going back to what Emily said about how one of the things that has caused this overreaction in postmodernism where people are denying all truth is that, uh, you know, they've, truth has been a billy club, beaten over, uh, which is confirming Derrida's postmodern thing that truth claims are power. We're the ones who know and you, you, you don't know and then we beat you up. Um, how different it would be. It, it, like all, all of the issues of relativism, you know, what's cultural condition, what's not. All, all these issues, and they're tough issues. How different would it be if, if at the center of it all, we put that command to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Let everything you do be done in love, yeah. including discussing what is and is not relative in the Bible, well, including discussing what's cultural and what's not cultural, you know, so that, that, that now our, our dialogue becomes an expression of love. In fact, I, I think that 
your love is, love becomes more beautiful the greater the diversity it can encompass. Hamaj's love isn't beautiful, but a diverse love is, because it's difficult. I agree, and I think within my generation, um, the articulation, um, I think that everything has its place. There is a strong need, um, and, you, and both of you brought it up around the articulation and reason of why we believe what we believe. That, to me, needs to go hand in hand with um, deeds, works. Yes. The love of God, action, showing action. I think that within my generation, I don't think that everyone is going to be moved by just um, the articulation of why we believe what we believe. I think that that articulation and our belief will have to be transcended to how we love people, Mm -hmm. how we treat people. Our character, mimicking the character of Jesus, is how we are going to connect with our generation. Mm -hmm. Emily, you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I think going off of that, one of the reasons that I believe in the authority of Scripture and that I believe in Jesus, and actually the, the reason we're doing this whole series on the, on the Sermon on the Mount, why we're even having this conversation, is that our lives are, are built around believing that's, that's true. Yeah. That, that why, why are we going to spend months looking at the Sermon on the Mount unless we believe that, that it's true and that what Jesus said is, is true? And I think when I look at scripture and see it as an authority, and then I look at Jesus, I see that that aspect of love and cruciform love is the only thing that's gonna make the world Amen. work. I was, I was driving home the other day, and I was thinking about politics in our country, and race, and the pandemic, and, and I was thinking like, everything we try isn't working. Like, it's just a mess. And then I thought, you know, Jesus is the smartest dude there ever was. And he lays out this truth for us. And can you imagine what the world would look like if we said, this is true, we're gonna take him at his word. I love that story about the the man who comes to Jesus and uh, he says, heal my son. And and Jesus said, all right, he's healed. And it says, he took him at his word and he left. Mm -hmm. If we took Jesus at his word, this is the truth, lived like Cedric was saying, primarily in that love coming out of Christ. Like that's... That shows the truth Amen. of Jesus by the, the fruit, by what happens. It's kind of a pragmatic argument for, for, for truth. Nothing else works. This has got to be true. In fact, I, I would argue that, that uh, the, the whole idea of self-sacrificial love, it, any ideal, any absolute uh, ultimate uh, ideal that you could post other than cross-like love would at some point, you'd feel justified killing somebody to protect it. Uh, the only ideal that we could live by that wouldn't result in more violence is one that prohibits violence. Enemy loving nonviolence. Uh, living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. See, it's the only hope of the world. If there's any hope of the world, that's it. And uh, that's a good reason to put all your eggs in that basket. You guys, thanks so much. Uh, this has really been, I wish we had more time because I, I want to talk about that ideal again. But, uh, really good stuff. Uh, thanks so much for, for uh, volunteering being a part of this. Coming out in the sub-zero weather, they do get righteousness points. You guys don't. You're nice and warm, but we get righteousness points. Woo-hoo! All right, all right. Thanks so much, you guys. Uh, look, at it, we have uh, here, uh, as we're bringing the service to a close, if you would like some prayer, uh, we have our prayer rooms. Where there's folks there who would love to pray for whatever need that you have, whatever you're going through. Don't go through it alone. Remember, we have the Muse cast on uh, Tuesdays at 4 o'clock. They go deeper into the, the message. You can unpack some stuff there. I encourage you to be part of that. And then we have our gathering groups. 
Um, and it, during this time of COVID, it's so important to, to at least have screen time with other people. And I really encourage you to get on there and to be dialoguing about this stuff, be building community. Um, let's uh, double down on our passion for, for God in this, in this season that we're in right now. And uh, no, like, like Dilan said earlier, when we're weak, he is strong, all right? It's a time of weakness when we can't get together, but God is strong, he prevailed, and it's all gonna work out. Uh, let me just close with this prayer. Fathers, we leave now. I pray that you bless all the people who are hearing, whatever time they're hearing, wherever they are. Just bless them. Uh, take the truths that we have talked about here and, and engrave them into their hearts and mind. Kingdomize all of us by the power of your spirit as we are learning to love together, uh, loving each other, loving the world as you have loved us and given your life for us. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, oh, listen to that thunderous roar. Oh, say it louder. Oh, I, I just love it. It is good. Can't wait to hear that again. God bless you guys. See you next week.